0: I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Today, I'm going to read another story from a collection I call Patches from a Secondhand Planet. And this one is called Going Down with Brickbulb Town. There was once a king who sat sadly in his king chair. It was more of a control chair because that's where he made decisions that affected everybody in his well I almost used the word kingdom, but that wouldn't be an accurate word to use. In fact, I should also say that it couldn't be called a king chair because he wasn't really a king. He was just a guy in charge of a lot of people, but really had no official power as far as his foot could reach. It's like this. He, clunk shoe-toucher, had lived inside a brick-structured bulb that hung from some sort of stone branch of sorts. It was in a region of the second-hand planet where mountains looked like trees or roots. Take your pick. Anyway, the bulb, which we could call either a really big town or a pretty small country, didn't have a governing body to speak of. There was just a lot of people living in one brick bulb, and whenever there was some kind of problem that affected more than one person, the persons affected got together and decided what to do about it, democratically, I guess you would say, not unlike how you and your friends might decide what to eat and drink tonight and where to do it. And if someone inside the circle destroyed the harmony by being a jackass, they just didn't get asked into any future decision-making processes. Or to dinner. One might ask how such a loosey-goosey group of people ended up living in a bulb made of bricks that hung from a mountain branch. The legend goes that a family of minor tribal kings called the chiefs large and in charge had had the thing built by all their conquered enemies that they had enslaved. Although a band of brick masons had offered the tribal kings to build the bulb quicker and cheaper, the kings didn't see how free slave labor could be any cheaper. The brick masons shrugged and went off down the stone branch and eventually built their own in about five years' time. Given that at the end of those five years, the chief's large and in-charge bulb had had several setbacks, including a half-finished bulb falling to its doom at one point, it was just a stem hanging from the stone branch. The tribal kings decided it would just be easier to kill all the brick masons and take their bulb, which is what they did. Eventually, because of tribal family infighting, a civil war broke out and pretty much everyone who had any chance of being in charge was decapitated. So, with that at the back of their historical minds, the remaining people in the Brick Bulb Town took a real hands off approach to governing themselves. But on occasion, the Brick Bulb people had to deal with inconsiderate invaders from outside the town and thus appointed jerk kickers, who of course kicked the jerks until they stopped being the kind of jerk that affected others. This is where our king who weren't a king came into it. There seemed to be an unusual amount of outside inconsiderate chuckleheads stirring up trouble in a short amount of time, at which our not-king ended up saving the day on so many occasions. Finally, everyone took a collection and just appointed him Jerk Kicker General. And it was after a most harrowing scuffle, where high up on the stone branch their town hung from, that our Jerk Kicker General defeated Gnome Peehole Chomper. The pseudo-bomb thrower. His bombs are hard to defend against because they weren't really genuine bombs. No one could ever quite figure out what they were, even though they still hurt people and destroyed societies. That somebody thought out loud, hey, if Klunk is so great at kicking jerks, I wonder what he could do with some of the other problems we have in this old bulb. And sure enough, Clunk's shoe-toucher was also pretty good at fixing some of the Bulb's other non-jerk-related problems. But even if his solutions weren't so successful, or even counterproductive, who was going to question a guy with such a deft foot? And maybe that's where the troubles began. Clunk actually didn't really want the job after a while. I mean, sure, he got a lot of free food and all the honeys a fella could ever want. But the senses get dulled, and he kind of missed his former life of never being noticed. He also might have overstepped his bounds a bit. He began to remember all the jerks he'd ever known and wished they had gotten hit by a bus when he was younger. So as jerk kicker general, all those folks on his list got kicked, some to the point of no longer kicking, if you get my meaning. And again, even though he didn't want the job anymore, he took great personal offense when he heard about some random and minor problem in the bulb, where it was sorted out by the citizens on their own. So offended, he would, in a rage, swarm in with his elite kicker force and kick beyond recognition everyone involved in the already settled matter. This caused some of the more clever and entrepreneurial type citizens to hobble out of the bulb forever, which gave the not-king one less smarty pants to worry about. He had thought about doing the right thing, which would have been relenting his power and going back to private life, but that would most certainly leave a power vacuum, which he could already see a queue forming of wannabe kicker generals, whom it would logically follow would not take long to eliminate any threats to the new powerful position. Their chief threat, of course, would have been the awesomest kicker alive, Clunk Shoe-Toucher. What a pickle he had gotten himself into, the Not-King thought to himself on his Not-King chair. But I gotta confess, this story is not even about Clunk Shoe-Toucher. Let me introduce to you Farnky Smearcake. This character had never met the Jerk-Kicker General, but was very similar to the Not-King in that he had some power tied to a throne of sorts, and boy howdy if he didn't use it. You see, Farnky Smearcake was in charge of keeping a public toilet clean and well-stocked with toilet paper. How he got the job was related to the non in another way. Public toilets were part of the public relations kiss-and-make-up gesture with the citizens of Brick bulb Town after a recent procedural goof where the jerk-kicker general intervened in a quit staring at my beautiful daughter's dispute and apparently accidentally kicked to death all of the victims' male relations instead of the actual perpetrators. Whoops. So the elite kicker force went around building some public restrooms which massaged many of the brick bulbians' hearts into the shape of forgiveness. I mean, every time they didn't have to run home to do a poo, they thought about good old clunk shoe-toucher. Unfortunately, we know how nasty a public anything gets, and so before a sticky bottom outbreak picked up too much steam, the Not King made some stewardship appointments. That's where Farnky Smearcake came in. Farnky didn't really have any qualifications. He'd never even cleaned his room as a child, much less a commode but he had been a nephew to the dead father of the beautiful stared at Daughters, and in a kind of killing two birds with one kick move, Farnky Smearcake got the job, no questions asked. So yeah, he really didn't do a good job with keeping the seats all that less sticky than they would have been left to their own filth, but there was no way he'd ever be fired, given that some of his family had been mistakenly kicked to their deaths. All the same, Mr. Smearcake did strangely take some pride in how the public treated his porcelain empire. If someone left too many skid marks on his particular bowl, well, that earned them a lecture about what dietary habits would lead one to form such uncooperative waste. And if anyone didn't take his chastising seriously enough, the toilet king might even suspend their crapper privileges. Another way Farnky Smearcake exerted his power was if he saw someone he thought was too overweight, he'd only allow the fatty to have a couple squares of toilet paper to teach them a lesson on frugality. Obviously, giving someone less toilet paper doesn't teach anyone anything, except that more is better, which only proved the point to anyone already prone to excess. I'm not sure why Farnky became so possessed of such a trivial thing. It was like he got possessed by some spirit which was so prickly that it gave reasonableness the itchies until it left Farky Smearcake's mind. But I can say I know we all have a little Farnke Smearcake the Toilet King inside of us. Even you here in this, if you're sitting there thinking, oh no, not me, I've got it together, then you most certainly have Toilet King tendencies in you. And the blindest are usually the worst. I can tell you that somewhere in your life, you're fighting like Farnky Smearcake over control of a something as meaningless as a toilet, and people are making ugly faces behind your back. Maybe as you read this even. Glance into a reflective surface, say toilet water, and you'll see for yourself. Oh man, you guys are really going to hate me now. This story is not even about farky Smear Cake. But... I promise, it is about a guy walking up that very moment to use the said toilet. Swandi Hautofa. Swandi had been strolling down the lane when the mumabaj salad he had eaten the day before was ready to exit the building, so to speak. He hustled it down to the rest of the lane, to the toilet, but when the toilet king saw him coming, Farnky Smearcake thought to himself, I don't like this guy's haircut. It says it's better than me. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. All the same, he put up a sign that the restroom was closed for a fresh spruce up. "'That would be welcome news to the regular passer-bys in that neighborhood, "'as that the lavatory had gotten so nasty, "'it looked like bottom-heavy pigs had dragged their butts across the floor "'and against the walls after a terrible bout with the runs.' Ah, oh, come on!' Swandy Hautofa proclaimed as he saw the sign go up "'as he was about to enter. "'I'm sorry, but we're closed.' "'Farnky Smearcake shook his head with a feigned face of sympathy. "'You'll have to wait.' "'Please, can you just give me three minutes?' Maybe less. My bowels are telling me it'll probably be a slam dunk. You can just wait like everyone else. Swandi Hautofa looked behind him. There was nobody else. So he sighed and decided that standing there would be better than trying to hoof at home. Swandi had a scooter but only used it on special occasions to save money given the high cost of fuel was to a town way up on a mountain. But of course the Toilet King took his sweet time and in fact kept prolonging the cleaning as long as he could, taking the chance to clear some cobwebs and pick out the dead flies from the floor drain, one by one. When Farnkey could find no other task to fill time, he looked up to see that the young man with the great hair was no longer in the doorway. Swandy was actually out behind the hut emptying his throbbing colon onto the raw pavement. No paper available he wiped his messy crevice on a bicycle bicycle seat he spied laying on the ground nearby. The young man walked away feeling a hundred times better now, but would have felt even better if he had known that Farky Smearcake used that broken bicycle seat to relax on during his breaks, which were numerous. From there, the subject of our story continued his journey to his favorite hairdresser, Flip Fade Weaver. It was time for a spruce up because Swendy was meeting with his girlfriend, Clary, and her parents the girl sabbats, later that day. Flip Fade delivered a fresh cut and shaping, something to impress the parents, but edgy enough to give a little tingle to his girlfriend's innards. Right before Swendy jumped out of the barber chair, Flip Fade motioned in a secretive manner towards him. You're a great reliable customer and I appreciate that, the hairdresser whispered, so I want to treat you to some of my homemade thick cups. Swandy was really touched because living in a city made of bricks and hanging from a mountain, food was not that plentiful, having to be always imported and thus pretty expensive. The delicious gesture was just the boost of confidence that Swandy needed to face his girlfriend's parents with a more upright posture. That evening, after a dinner that went well with Swandy, being able to answer all the girl sabbats, grilling questions about his current social status and plans for a status upgrade, Clary's father motioned for the young man with the fresh haircut to join him outside. The two walked along the back garden, this family well off enough to afford a garden in a town not known for its massive amount of space. After some peaceful silence, Mr. Gorisabat turned to Swandy and just came out with it. Listen, we want the best for our daughter. When you have your own children, you'll understand. And I know you're not a man of much means, but you seem to have ambition And if what you say about your boss taking a shine to you is true, I believe you can fulfill a few requirements that I and Clary's mother require. If you can get to a point to where you can at least own your own apartment and provide Clary with a new scooter that'll impress the neighbors, we'll agree to marriage. we assuming that's what you're ultimately after. Swandy was stunned. He thought it would take a year of dinners till he dared bringing up the M-word. Not wanting to let this opportunity go, Swandy grinned and simply answered, understood. What's your timetable? The young man calculated estimations and variables of possible overtime and a life on a bare bones budget. Maybe a year and a half if my own scooter doesn't give me trouble. Make it two years to be safe and bring your scooter to me if you have some trouble. I'm a practical guy, and when I assessed how much I was paying a repairman, I learned to do for myself. You would do well to do the same, but until then, just bring it over. And as a sign of trust, Mr. Gorosabat led him behind some thick bushes to a concealed locked door. After he produced a giant complicated key out of his secret pocket amongst his garments, the man motioned them down to a cellar of sorts. Like everything in Brickbulb Town, the cellar was made of bricks, but these were all bricks stacked for no reason other than for recreation. Many years ago, when the town had less folks, the most popular pastime, Bottle Shot, was a game played amongst stacks of bricks, where folks ran around shooting steel balls with slingshots at glass bottles. As bricks in space became more scarce, this practice ceased for practical purposes, especially since the balls often chipped away at the bricks upon impact. But here was a hidden remnant from those mythical days. Swandy had the time of his life that night with Mr. Gorsabot. Scooting home from his future-in-law's swanky neighborhood, Swandy grinned, not caring if he got a little lost on this night. Life was sweeter than honeybee puke. He actually got a little lost, but using the landmark of the slouching Mammut Tower, which his apartment stood in the shadow of, Swundy got himself home where a child sat on his front steps. The child lit up when she saw Swundy and held up a dog turd with some pine needles stuck in it. "'Give you,' the child proclaimed. "'Thank you kindly, Pluby.' Pluby was one of his neighbor's kids, five years old maybe, who played by herself almost all day, every day, in front of their apartments. The young man looked at all the child's clutter of toys and trash treasures organized there on all the four steps. These steps weren't really his anymore, Swandy had to admit. You good? Pluby asked while rearranging her things and making a place for Swandy to sit. I'm happier than a sad person in a sleeping pill factory, little friend. My job is secure, my girlfriend is fit, and her parents are happy to have me. Good, the little kid replied, not having much idea of what he had said. How was your day, Ploobie? Good looky. Pluby held up a paper cup full of old bird blood slush treat, and after sticking a broken scooter fluid checker stick in it, offered to share. Cool, Swundy said, taking the cup and moving it around without ever drinking any of the nasty old sauce. You're a good kid. Stay that way, and I think the world will smile on you too one day. The child recognized the word smile and did so, stretching her mouth with her fingers into upward curves as far as it could go. Swundy had went to bed that evening, smiling as big as his front-step friend, but not long later, into his first few dreams, the young man found himself on some plot where he and his girlfriend were racing a couple of viruses on tiny scooters inside the stem of a giant dandelion. But right in the middle of it, the brakes of his scooter kept locking, until finally Clary was thrown forward and onto the pavement. The crash had made her a bloody mush, and Swandy wailed while his stupid scooter kept making the screeching brake sound, even though it was just laying there on the ground. Swundy woke up so abrupt that he was nearly thrown from the bed himself. "'You good?' his little neighbor asked the next morning. "'I had a nightmare,' Swundy told Pluby as they sat on the step and shared a bird-feather-cloud water-soup breakfast. The little child pulled out a pouch from under her shirt and produced a bandage. After making what was apparently supposed to be glue from the soup— and her own spit, the child applied the bandage to Swandy's forehead. "'Butter?' the young man grinned at the sweet mind in the little body. "'I'm more butter than you know, Pluby.' In spite of the bandage being made by a child, Swandy did wear it to bed that night, thinking it might trick his subconscious into having better dreams. The kid's spit must have not been a nightmare talisman because he had yet more horrid dreams on that night. One dream had him litten Clary take a nap on his couch. He'd go into another room to let her have her peace.' But then someone outside his apartment kept making some kind of racket. Swandy slipped outside to ask the stranger to stop making noise. The stranger agreed, but then returned to banging on the pavement, as if they were an imbecile. Swandy looked through the window to see Clary stirring, and when he went to chastise the stranger, found that they now had his girlfriend's face. Simultaneously, the Clary inside was now yelling at Swandy to stop the racket, while the Clary outside looked to be taking pleasure at getting the young man into trouble. Another nightmare inverted this situation a little to where Swundy was stuck inside a tiny prison room, staring at his girlfriend through the barred window, while his thug cellmate scraped pointlessly at the wall with a metal spoon. Still traumatized by the previous dream, Swundy slammed his head against the bars until he woke up. The poor guy was exhausted. Do you know anything about dreams? Swundy asked this Tinker Twister guy named Ting Tap who repaired stuff for folks down the street. I mean, he did more than just repair scooters, clocks, and electric genital warmer sheaths. Ting had a keen interest in the brain and caused a little sensation not so long ago. A local man who became a quadriplegic after being struck by a fallen brick complained that he had become useless to his family. So one day, Ting Tap showed up with a helmet, wires, and a metal box, and after some jerry-rigging, had the quadriplegic's house running on the electricity that ran through his brain. "'Actually, folks only have enough electricity to power a short genital warmer sheaf, but it so happens. I'd recently invented an electricity magnification thingy did,' the Tinker twister told Swundy in confidence. "'I've perfected it to where I've got my house running off the brains of a couple mosquitoes, also rendered useless, but in their cases, it was by way of sadistic leg-plucking children.' "'Not so much,' Ting-Tap finally answered Swundy's question about dreams. "'What's up?' And so Swundy relayed the dream, adding, "'My guess is that because things have only started going my way in life recently, "'I have a fear that nothing good will last.' "'You're wise to think that because everything cracks and falls to its death eventually,' the Tinker Twister nodded. "'Still, living in dread of the crumble is hardly enjoying the good you've been given.' Swundy nodded. "'Thanks, Mr. Tapp. "'Obvious sound device and yet not so obvious to my pessy mind.' "'No problem.' I think as time goes on, you'll learn to trust the good that happens to you is for real, in spite of its inevitable temporal nature. Hey, let me show you my latest device. The device was also related to brains. It can help mute or foreign people communicate. It displays a picture of what the person is thinking. Eventually, I'll be able to make it say audibly what the person is thinking. But for now, all I can get is the picture. That's awesome. Would it work on a child? Do you have a tongueless or immigrant love child I don't know about? Nah, there's this little neighbor girl I warmed the front steps with, and she's not able to say much yet. You can give it a try. Take it for a few days. And pretty soon the little girl was having the time of her life, showing her friend all the things that her mind could think of. Swandy's nightmares returned, although this time they only partially involved Clary. When the frightened fellow awoke, he couldn't even remember his girlfriend's role in any of the dreams except that she was present. One thing that did dawn on him was that all of his nightmares that night, and the other night's, involved sounds. Actually, a specific sound, the more he thought about it. He considered for a minute whether this was some kind of lost sound from his childhood or maybe from outer space. Not wanting to fall into the category of possibly being a delusional lunatic, he wondered in the most hidden part of his brain whether the sound was from the maker himself. The young troubled man visited the Tinker Twister again, this time trying to imitate the sound with his mouth. It wasn't a very good rendition, and thus Ting Tap had no insight to offer on the matter. Swandy found a public bench and began to work hard with his mouth and everything in it—tongue, teeth, cheeks, wind, and all—to get that exact haunting. A passer by carrying an instrument, nodded to Swandy's unintentional rhythm. For half a minute, the musician whipped out his stringer thingy and played along to Swandy's nightmare noise. "'You're into that sound, too, yeah?' the musician asked said after he put his instrument away, giving Swandy a high-five and bouncing off before he could be questioned about his meaning." The nightmares kept on, so much so that Swandy wasn't getting proper sleep and it was affecting his performance at his job. He finally had to take a half a day off and go to bed. He slept so deep he almost didn't hear the alarm that was supposed to remind him to get to the Gorosabots for another dinner. Swandy shot out of his front door, nearly squashing his little neighbor friend there on the front steps. Where go? Pluby asked as if she were hungry. Going to see my girlfriend's parents. The child didn't seem to understand. So, Swandy undid the brain monitor off of the girl's head and made the thought, showing he and the future in-laws around the table eating dinner, he and the father playing bottle shot, and then, whoops, there was Swandy making out with his girlfriend on the front porch. Swandy handed the device back to the child, at which she refastened it and made the same picture of the anticipated dinner, except with Pluby sitting and eating between Swandy and Clary, she shooting steel balls that changed direction in the air and hit their targets perfectly. Finally, Swundy and Pluby taking turns kissing Clary, in the most innocent of ways, of course. Swandy laughed out loud and proclaimed, Sure, little friend, if your parents don't mind. They didn't, as if they were busy getting drunk and cooking. When the two of them showed up to the Gorosabat's home, the little girl had a new outfit on. Swundy had been a little worried that since most of Pluby's clothes were covered in stains, some old, some fresh, with the slush or food still present in a solid form, that Clary's folks might be offended that he had not even taken the time to clean the ragamuffin up. So Swandy bought the child some new duds on the way over. Who's the kid? An orphan or something? mister Gorosabot asked Swandy while Pluby was still in earshot. Nah, just my neighbor's kid. Sweet thing, but kinda lonely, plays by herself or with me. Pluby must have understood some of what Swandy relayed, as that she hugged his leg and projected images of the two playing, in addition to Swandy buying her the new clothes. You're not spending money on this child, are you? Clary's father questioned. Ah, just sometimes. Swandy found himself uncomfortably apologizing for some reason. Nothing worth mentioning. It's a fair exchange, I figure. I practice being fatherly, so I'll be ready when Clary and me squeeze out one of our own. Mr. Gorisabat frowned. If you're serious about marrying my daughter, you better leave the charity stuff behind you until you can get firmly established and secure. The father said in a very, you're skating on thin ice, buddy, tone of voice, when my daughter's comfortable, then you can throw around alms for the poor or whoever. Kind of a good point, Swandy admitted to himself, but he still felt a little icky at the thought of charity only being a duty of the rich and established. As Swandy and Pluby scooted slowly home, the former wrestled with the disturbing fact that he might be marrying into the wrong family. He had heard from an old man once that however someone treats the unfortunate is eventually how they'll treat you, especially when situations get stressful. Anyone could be nice when the sun was shining, but when a monsoon blew in, some would stab you in the eye with your own umbrella before they ran off with it. The young man glanced back at Pluby's monitor, which made a picture of Swandy's brain with a question mark over top of it. Just thinking about love and life, little friend, Swandy replied. The monitor made a picture of Swandy and Pluby, hand-in-hand inside of a big heart. "'Thank you, darling,' Swandy responded as he leaned back against the child on the seat behind him. And in his worried, lost-in-thought trance, he started making the sound from his dreams. The girl laughed a little, and then her screen showed a picture of her parents scraping bricks. "'That's uncanny, Pluby. Swandy commented. "'That's exactly what the noise from my dreams sound like, like people scratching bricks. Why would I dream about that?' Well, Pluby had an answer. When the scooter stopped in front of their respective apartments, the child jumped off and pulled at Swandy. He did so, and she began leading him out behind his apartment. Once at a particular spot, Pluby pointed up at his back-bricked wall. What the... the young man exclaimed at seeing what she was pointing at. The corner of his apartment looked to be deteriorating to the point of near collapse. Has some kind of animal been chewing on my home? The little girl shook her head and again portrayed the picture of her parents scraping bricks. But this time, Swandy recognized the bricks as being the ones from this very corner. Really? The young man asked his little informant. I don't understand why, but okay, I'll just go ask him. And that he did. Pluby's parents at first flatly denied it, but after Swundy commented, he could see some of the brick dust residing on their chins. They admitted it, but had quite the justification. Well, we only took a little, the father explained. And you have the same size apartment as us, but you're only one person living in it. We've got three people in here. Don't be so greedy. Swundy was both incensed and confused. Let's forget about how my greed would like to keep my home from falling in on itself for a moment to discuss why destroying my home helps you at all. Are y'all scraping off bits of brick to build an extra room or something? Pluby's parents looked at their single neighbor as if he was an idiot. You don't know? Know what? Know how delicious brick mix is, the mother replied. You've got to be pulling my leg. Your leg is pull if not, proclaimed the father. "'See for yourself,' the mother said, shoving a reddish-thick brownie into Swandy's gasping mouth, and at the young man's attempt to block the chunk with his tongue, got a taste of the confection. It was great, and actually tasted familiar. "'I think I had one of these at my hairdressers.' "'Probably. Most people have secretly picked up on the recipe,' the father suggested. "'So you're saying that people in Brickbulb Town are munching on bricks?' "'All the people we know are. But that's insane.' I mean, bricks are rare and expensive and are all in use. Oh, no. Don't tell me everybody is eating on each other's homes. Pluby's father kicked the floor a little in shame. Well, kind of. I mean, you'd be pretty stupid to eat your own home. Swundy nodded. So you eat your neighbor's home instead. This is ridiculous. What do you think is eventually going to happen if you keep gnawing on my apartment? It'll fall on me if I'm at home at that appointed hour. The couple had nothing to say to this and just shrugged, looking more stupid than ashamed. Well, you've eaten enough on my dime. Go eat somewhere else. And with that, Swandy marched the short distance home. And not so miraculously, the weird dreams ceased. But the ill feeling in Swandy's conscience didn't. So the next free day he had, he and Pluby took an investigative walk around his neighborhood. On the street sides of everywhere, things looked normal. But in the back alleys, there was a different story being told. Nearly every building had filed down chunks missing, but at least at the moment their damage was only cosmetic. The real trouble was when Swundy decided to go check out a place on a whim, the area behind the slouching Mammut Tower. Sure enough, there was the site that should have chilled anyone in that neighborhood to the bone. The ginormous building had a massive chiseled out gap in its cornerstone, its ability to stay standing much longer in serious question. Plooby wisely made the image of the mammut rocking to and fro before falling onto she and he's apartment. Swandy could hardly sleep as he lay in bed that night. The only thing he could think about was how close the ceiling scraper was to crushing he and who knows how many people to death. Worried to the point of nearly vomiting, Swandy considered going to his in-laws' home to tell them what kind of danger was at his door. But then he realized that'd make him look like a chump, and who'd want their daughter marrying a chump in a precarious neighborhood? Finally out of exhaustion, he fell asleep, but was only allowed one of those heart-racing, chilly-sweat, nightmare-filled slumbers. The next day, Swandy decided that he'd first put up a sign pleading for whoever was munching on the mammut to cut it out, listing the consequences. As luck would have it, when he got to the gap cornerstone, there was a poorish-looking family going to town on scraping and collecting. It's easy for you to condemn what we're doing, especially when you have no children yourself, the poorish woman chastised. I'm not condemning. I'm warning, Swandy said in his defense. Looking with sincere compassion for the skinny kids, he continued, I totally understand wanting to put food in those bellies. I'm just saying that in your attempt to save your own lives, you might cause the death of thousands of others. Come on, the father commanded his family in irritation. Let's go starve to death somewhere else. Later, Swandy went to check on the status of his posted sign and happened across another group. These not looking so poor people... Chiseling away, his sign was laying on the ground with a big pile of human excrement on it. Come on, dude. One of the chiselers shrugged. The guy who owns this building can afford to spare some dust. Agreed, Swandy concurred. But the building can't spare where you're taking it from much longer. And potential carnage and destruction aside, what if someone poorer than you came stealing chunks from your home to the point of near collapse? Would you still see your point? The chislers shrugged and moped away. Swandy felt like he was really getting through to people, and that there might be hope for his neighborhood. But the next day he had off from his job, he stalked the back of the slouching mammut, and both the poor and the not-so-poor groups he had lectured had come back for more brick meal, completely undaunted. There were other thieves, too, one group of brick cake vendors who countered Swandy with, "'We saw you walking up on that street when you came. Is that your street? Did you build that by yourself?' Later, there was another group of, without a doubt, rich kids, but who claimed they were scraping the gap to make food for the orphans. That group was especially hostile in condemning of Swandy's efforts, labeling him greedy or a stooge for the brick hoarders. Frustrated, Swandy decided to go to a flip-fade weaver just to get his hair washed and his scalp massaged. It was there that he was offered another brick dust treat. Where did you get the scrapings, can I ask? Swandy posed to the shop owner. Well, like an idiot, I used to scrape on the back of my own shop until one of my workers suggested I scrape off the back of the mammoth. I can take you up there sometime if you want. I know exactly where it's at, Swandy quipped. It's just that I live next to it, and if the foundation collapses, I'll be the first to get squashed like a juicy bug. Yeah, I noticed the cornerstone was looking a little anemic, the hairdresser admitted. So if you don't mind me asking, what did you think was going to happen if you kept whittling down its source of support? Flip Fade just shrugged. I guess I thought that if things got bad enough, the Mammut owner or jerk-kicker general would do something about it. Good thinking, Swandy admitted to himself. Later that day, Swandy entered the lobby of the Mammut Tower and asked the receptionist if he could see the owner. Oh, he's very busy, the man replied, looking back at a book he'd been reading when Swandy approached. But I have something important to tell him. The receptionist smirked. Yeah, we all do. I need to tell him to give me more vacation time. Uh, How about a manager or board member? Swandy asked. The receptionist, out of annoyance, handed Swandy over to the chief of trash bin emptiers. That guy was nice enough and bumped him over to the building maintenance boss, but come to find out, he was only over internal maintenance and not outer. The internal maintenance boss sent him up to Human Resources, who complimented Swandy. Buddy, you've got persistence. We have an opening over in sales if you're interested. Listen, if someone doesn't hear what I have to say, everyone in this building will be smushed into sticky bloody jelly. "'Man, you've got a lit fire in you,' the HR manager cheered. "'If you work for us, that'd be a feather in my cap, "'which would be flat as a brick dust pancake,' Swandy muttered as he marched out frustrated. The young man next wondered about how to get to the jerk-kicker general. Even in little brick-bulb town, the old hero was so far from reach in his not Palace, located in the ceiling of the town, surrounded by his jerk-kicker elite. Then Swendy remembered the Toilet King bragging about how he had been appointed by the general himself. So after assuring Farnky Smearcake that he wasn't there to soil his precious bathroom, Swandy got to his point. Farnky nodded and rubbed his chin, feeling wonderful at being needed by someone who wasn't just wanting to take a dump. Ah, well, I could talk to JKG. That's what we in his inner circle call him. But you've got to convince me it's worth my effort. Thousands of people will die if I don't talk to him. The toilet king a little panicky because he not only didn't have a direct line to the JKG but had never even laid eyes on the guy, shook his head and concluded, Yeah, that doesn't sound like something he'd be interested in. Feeling paranoid that Swendy could see through his lies, Farnke offered, Want to pinch one off? I just polished the stall. Swundy's fretting had made his innards bubbly, but he thought he'd rather have that moment in the privacy of his doomed home. And it was on his home pot that he thought of only one other possible person to go to with his ill omen, the Tinker Twister. The two talked deep about the subject later that afternoon at Tap's workshop. I can't tell if my options are to physically stop people, Swandy thought out loud, since, in a sense, it's me defending my own home from the collapsing or I don't know if there is any ore. There is the ore of just leaving your home and letting the building fall on those who caused it, the Tinker Twister offered. Yeah, Swandy nodded, not so thrilled about that option either. Maybe if some died, the others would learn from it and wise up. A little late at that point, though. The Tinker Twister shook his head. Maybe, but I've seen a few blind men regain their sight. Ting-Tap stopped breathing, seeming to debate whether to say the next thing. He ultimately decided to. I would never admit this publicly, but this fevered willingness to kick one's own cells off and down into their deaths, so to speak, might be some nudge of brother nature trying to kick them out of the realm of the living. This behavior maybe needs to be destroyed, not by you, mind you, but by itself. It just seems like some kind of mechanism flips on when a group of people become so self-centered and short-sighted, conveniently, they snuff themselves out, and the world becomes a less terrible place. So, I guess what I'm saying is that after you've done your best to warn everyone, get out of their way and be on your way, Swandy sighed disappointedly at how right the Tinker Twister probably was. But if that building goes, a lot of innocent, non-brick-scraping people will certainly die too, children in particular. I can think of one that has more purity than hardly anyone in this city and will surely be crushed when it all goes down. Ting-Tap shook his head. I know. I have nothing to say that can make you feel better, I'm afraid. That evening, Swundy decided to go to his maybe-not-so-future in-laws and tell the bad news about what was probably going to happen to his home. You've got to get out of that neighborhood immediately, Clary and her mother blurted out in unison. I know, I know. The young man nodded, but strangely, Mr. Gorosabat was silent and actually grinning. The reason wasn't for what Swandy feared, though. This is great, Clary's father proclaimed. What a valuable son-in-law you've turned out to be. Everyone on the patio was puzzled. Can't you see the obvious opportunity here, Mr. Gorosabat asked? With all those extra bricks I've got tucked away, you know where I can call a meeting with the slouching mammoth's owner, global screaming cheeks. I think is his name, and not only warn him about the impending disaster, but sell him the bricks to circumvent the problem. I could probably charge whatever I wanted. I'll wait till the situation gets a little more dire, of course. Gotta get there right when they're hanging on by one finger, you know? At least the problem would be fixed, Swandy thought to himself, as he began to scoot home that evening. But he also realized that for sure he did not want to marry into Clary's family. It could only end with him being a nutless pawn in the family and never an actual member. He sighed in pain, feeling this was as low as one could go. Not eager to get to his possible death trap of a home, he took the long way. Through alleys, between buildings, and wouldn't you know it, but even in the slightly affluent areas, Swandy passed by certainly not poor people scraping away at each other's buildings. He swallowed hard, realizing that the whole town was a rotten nest of short-sighted fools. The Tinker Twister seemed to be right about this bunch getting what they deserved if and when the structures came tumbling down. But before the young man could stew much more on the sad reality of Brickbulb Town, he found himself being pounced on as he tried to unlock his front door. Swandy woke up a few minutes later, dazed. His eyes revealed a group of thugs, mixed up of mostly the rich kid charity activists, driving a stake connected to a chain into the ground right under the gaze of the Mammut Tower and its unstable pile of bricks. We charge you and find you guilty of, one, treason, not trusting that the jerk-kicker general will solve this and all of Brick bulb Town's problems. Two, wanting orphans to starve. And three, of just being out-and-out out annoying, proclaimed one of the leaders. The jerk-kicker general? Swandy asked, suspicious that this overzealous bunch was using the JKG's name for their own purposes. "'Yes, yes,' replied another one of his accusers. "'He's been well aware of you and your alarmist actions for some time.'" It was true that Not King had known about the brick erosion troubles for some time. The upper entrepreneurial class that lived along the ceiling of Brickbulb Town, known as the get it Duns, had complained to the Jerk-Kicker General some time ago about the impending danger that everyone chipping away at supporting structures would bring. No doubt this resourceful group could have quickly remedied the problem themselves, but in an effort to include the control-obsessed Not King and did not get kicked, they laid the brick-eating trouble at his powerful feet. And because of his tattletale spies commissioned throughout the town, Not King Clunk was also aware of Swandy's personal campaign to halt the problem. Even at that moment, the jerk-kicker general was patting himself on the back about taking care of the Swandy threat in the non-violent manner that he did. As you have probably guessed, activist rich kids were also on the JKG's threat radar, for their taking it upon themselves to solve the orphan problem. Sicking them on Swendi in an official capacity was a temporary solution for keeping them busy and making it look like he was the responsible, compassionate guy around the bulb. The Not King wondered how he could end both the rich kid activist and orphan problems at the same time. Maybe he would sentence them to become surrogate parents to the orphans. Or... Maybe he could grind the rich kids into gummy meat and feed them to the orphans. For the moment, JKG just relaxed and promised himself to look into those and the brick erosion trouble starting sometime, oh, maybe next month. The most just punishment, the accusers leveled at the chain swundy, is for you to repair this building, which you so elegantly won't shut up about, with bricks from your own home. Swandy shot his eyes over to his apartment, where he found one of the corners completely collapsed in a pile of rubble and all kinds of brick-bulb citizens grabbing as many bricks as possible. A total free-for-all. As the interior of his home became more exposed, the looters started reaching for his personal possessions, that is, what little he had, and they all applauded in spitefulness at the sight of Swandy's begging them to stop. Sometime into the night, after the looting party was over, Swandy lay on the ground still chained up, and wincing at the pain his tears acidity had induced onto his face. Now feeling like an old man having to live out the remainder of his years with no friends, family, or home, he did the only thing any of us can do in these moments. "'Please, Mr. Maker, how is this just?' Swandy pleaded out in a prayer. "'Was I wrong? And is there some big part of your plan that I'm missing? As far as I can tell, they will all die if they keep doing what they're doing, and I at least tried to warn them, but now they've enslaved me.' And with the most hopeless cynicism he'd ever allowed to leave his lips, Swendy accused the maker. Have you lost control of what you've made? There wasn't an immediate answer, but a few hours later, Pluby appeared, presenting the keys to the shackles. When Swendy asked the child how she had pulled that off, she let her monitor show her slipping the keys from her parents' pockets after they passed out from stuffing themselves with alcohol-spiked brick paste from Swendy's home. After he got undone, the young man hugged the child and then told her to go home. He next wandered over to his collapsed home to see what, if anything, he could salvage. After not much mind ringing, Swandy reasoned that the decision had been made for him. He would leave this place, but not to just go to another neighborhood. The young man reasoned that when the slouching mammut Tower went down, the jerk-kicker general would use the incident to expand his audacious display of power, and Swandy couldn't foresee his mind surviving within the enslaved existence. So Swandy packed enough bricks to feed himself as long as possible and looked to the spiral stairs that led to the ceiling exit gate. He was leaving Brick Bulb Town altogether and forever. The final problem for the young man was this, the innocent child, Pluby. If Swandy left her, she'd probably die or be enslaved for no good reason. But as bad as that was, the young man didn't think kidnapping her was right either. So he knocked on his neighbor's front door. Pluby opened the door to reveal her parents still passed out on the kitchen floor. Realizing the terrible position he was in, Swandy stated, I just came to say goodbye, Pluby. The child smiled and made her monitor display a hundred hands waving goodbye. An hour or so later, Swandy reached the ceiling gate and glanced back at Brickbulb Town for the last time. And after bribing the guards with a half a brick, the young man climbed up and out onto the stone branch that held up the town over the abyss. Swandy told himself he would return for Pluby when she was older and could decide for herself if she wanted to stay with her shifty parents in the deteriorating town. Not so long after Swandy's exit, there occurred a curiously humble sound. It was a snap that might have been mistaken for someone halving a cookie. A really big cookie, mind you, but with a quick snap all the same. And with that sound, brick bulb Town separated from its stone branch. And down it went. See, not only had people been robbing each other on the bottom, they'd been chipping away even more greedily from the get it doneers part of town, which of course was at the top base that held the bulb to its stone branch. Speaking of the get-it-dones, what ones that hadn't been kicked to death or immigrated to friendlier bulbs by the paranoid and envious not-king had seen this day coming and had engineered escape twirlers? If you'd witnessed the fall of Brick Bulb Town, you'd have seen the devices gracefully spin off from their dooms. It was a curious sight, I can tell you. The jerk-kicker general didn't waste any time repenting or blaming. He immediately ran to the nearest get-it-dunner's apartment, kicked a mama, whilst... She was trying to strap her kids into the twirler, and he himself spun away to safety. The children's mother screaming trailed away quick enough for the coward to enjoy the smooth ride away. Most brick bulb folks didn't even realize they would soon be dead. The feeling of being inside a falling something is initially like being a little dizzy. That is, until your head adjusts its equilibrium to where everything feels stable again. Some, though, began to take notice of the blur that were outside their bulb windows. If you were thinking that this was a moment of vindication for Swandie where everyone that had previously mocked and abused him finally admitted that he was right, well, you'd be wrong. There was no one wailing out phrases like, Alas, we are such fools. We should have listened to Swandi Haotofa. Why didn't we heed his wisdom? Our demise is surely our own fault. In fact, some citizens actually had a curse for Swandy's name on their lips as they were crushed by the town's crash into the abyss floor. But actually, Swandy fared better with the majority whom laid the blame at either the jerk-kicker general, since he was in charge, or the get it dones since they were the folks who, well, got things done. You'll find that most dummies roasting in the great afterlife barbecue are still blaming everyone but themselves for being there. Ironically, as the brick-bulb town hit the bottom, some people who were still not aware that their civilization was descending were crushed alive whilst munching on brick toast, brick glob, brick sticks, and other stolen brick meal byproducts. Farky Smearcake, though, died in the middle of telling a lie to some old man as to why he, with his wrinkled behind, couldn't use his precious toilet. Swundy didn't witness the fall, but he had turned to go back when he realized he had forgotten to return Tingtap's mind monitor. He didn't get too far when he started passing by so many get-it-dones refugees scurrying along the mountain branch. Their account of what happened caused one of those wounds in Swundy's heart that never repairs or allows one to make a permanent home ever again. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean.com We'll see you on the flip side.